We're continuing our, our series uh, titled Legacy, and this morning we're talking about a financial legacy. And so the reason I'm going to roll with this over the offering is because we're going to just keep talking about uh, the nature of a financial legacy and the nature of our resources and the nature of our money this morning. It's a discussion that our culture really doesn't want us to have. You, you guys are aware of that? Our culture really does not want us to have a discussion on how we use our money, and it never does because our culture would be perfectly fine if we continued to use the money that the most people within our culture use their money. Our culture would be perfectly fine if we stayed as as an average with six credit cards in every household, $16,000 in credit card debt, not to mention car payments and a mortgage and student loans and all the other debts that we take out. Our, Our culture would absolutely love if we would just stay unaware of all of these facts and all of this information and stay enslaved to the lender, consuming more than we can afford, and therefore not being able to exemplify for the next generation, right, a legacy, the next generation, how to properly use money. Our culture would absolutely love that. And so my hope is that we might learn a few things this morning, that we might make some very tough choices moving forward, and that we can then leave a a proper financial legacy for our children. How many of you watched the Viking Saints game last weekend? <clears throat> a lot of people, right? Because you might have been interested to see who the, the Eagles were going to be playing today. Really, really, uh, really fantastic game. A uh, really exciting game. Um, Thomas Morstead, the kicker for the New Orleans Saints, on the very opening drive, he tackled um, Marcus Sherrills of the uni- uh, university, I was going to say the University of Minnesota, um, I don't know why, but uh, of the Minnesota Vikings, <clears throat> he tackled him, and in the process of tackling him, he, he tore his rib cartilage, I don't know if he's aware of this, uh, he continued to play through the pain, um, and he made some incredible, beautiful punts uh, in, in the process, and then, as the game was coming to a conclusion, you, know, you probably all know how the game came to a conclusion, right? The Minnesota Vikings won it on a, a last-ditch, you know, effort to, to, you know, they had to go 61 yards, and they just miraculously did so. The Minnesota Miracle, the Minneapolis Miracle, they're calling it. Um, and the, the Saints needed 11 players to come back onto the field. After all the media had stormed the field, after all the players had stormed the field, they still had to make the extra point attempt. And so the, the, the Saints had to bring 11 really players back on the field for a meaningless point after. And who is the very first person who comes out of the tunnel? It's Thomas Morstead, the kicker who tore his cartilage, who was in incredible, horrible pain throughout the entire game. He was the first person to come back for this meaningless point after attempt. So in response to his sportsmanship, the Minnesota Vikings fans began to contribute to his charity. He has a, a, leg, he has a, a foundation called What You Give Will Grow. And so Minnesota Vikings fans began to give to this charity. And here is his um, first video in response to Vikings fans giving to his charity. Check this out. So, so he was trying to explain to his son why anybody would give, you know, a thousand miles away. Why people in Minnesota are giving to a charity in New Orleans, or why are people giving to a cause or, or a foundation in New Orleans? Why would people do this? It, it doesn't make sense, right? The more I tried to explain it, the more confused and perplexed my son got, as did I. Like, I just got confused. Why would people from so far away be so generous to an organization that they know nothing about? And, and not only that, but he's a Saints player. You know, he's on the other side. He's the enemy, you know? He's wearing a different colored jersey than me. Why would we be generous towards him? Why is this confusing? Why is it perplexing? Because what? Generosity is not natural. Generosity is just not 
natural. And so 12 hours later, right, he had mentioned, yeah, I just got an update from my, um, from my manager and $25,000 has been raised. That's great. 12 hours later, he makes another video that says this. So this was, um, this was done, I think, on like, you know, Tuesday. Um, it was earlier this week. And they've raised over $200,000 now um, for this. So, you know, Minnesota Vikings fans are the best fans, of course. Um, <laughs> you Eagles fans are all right, too. But isn't, it's cool, right? It's cool, it's cool. You can all agree that it's cool that Vikings fans would give to a charity that, that, um, that took the opportunity um, to give to a charity that, that wasn't you know, initially going to even benefit Minnesota. But he made the choice to, to take the money back to the Minnesota area, uh, which is pretty cool. But what I love about this, what I really, really love about this is that this um, Thomas Morstead, the kicker, took this opportunity with his son. Right? He's doing a puzzle with his son, and the situation happens. And he's like, hey, buddy, you know, you know what the Minnesota Vikings fans are doing? They're giving a ton of money to our charity that we as a family kind of support and began. Isn't that really cool? Daddy, why would someone do that? Well, let me tell you about generosity. Daddy, why would somebody do that? That's really confusing. That's really perplexing. Daddy, why would somebody do that? Well, let me tell you about the nature of generosity. Daddy, that's really confusing. I don't get it. Well, let me tell you about how money works. Well, Daddy, I, I don't get it. Why would people do that? Well, you know, we live in a culture that tells us that money is supposed to be used for this and that, you know, money, money is accumulated this way. But let, let, me, let me tell you about what we believe. He took an opportunity with his son to develop a financial legacy. And isn't really that what a legacy is? That we're going to pass on something down to the next generation, so we need to take opportunities when they arise, when they are before us, when they are in front of us, to say, hey, let me teach you right now about the situation in front of us. That's how you leave a legacy. A financial legacy isn't so much about leaving a ton of money behind. It's leaving behind a belief and an understanding of what money is and what money is for and how it is to be accumulated and whose it is. Now, everybody, every, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody everywhere already has <clears throat> a belief and an understanding of how money works. And therefore, everybody is already leaving a legacy behind. We want to just change the nature of the legacy from being self-consuming to being generous. See, most people, very much including Christians, by the way, see, Christians don't, um, you know, take the statistics in any sort of, you know, random, uh, new, new and beautiful direction, unfortunately, when it comes to money. Most people believe that money is security, and what it is for is to be consumed on ourselves, and how it is to be accumulated is as fast and as easy as possible. And whose it is, and whose is it? Well, it is mine, because I have it. Most people believe that. And let me just tell you that if you adopt that mentality in regards to your money, you will squander money when it is given to you, when it is accumulated. You will cheat in order to get more. You will never be content, and you will never be generous. So in the book of Proverbs, we see a wise man, very much like Thomas Morstead, who, who takes his son, and he sits his son down. And he says, hey, Buddy, let me tell you about how life works. See, the, problems, the, the Proverbs are not universal truths. They are not absolute truths. They are general observation about how the world works. And so this uh, wise man, uh, most, most uh, attribute this book to the King Solomon of the Old Testament, he sits his son down and he says, let me tell you about how life works and begins to speak. So this morning, on this conversation on leaving a financial legacy, I'm just going to pepper in some of these Proverbs. Understandings from 3,000 years ago about how finances worked and about how life worked in regard to money. And they really haven't changed all that much today. So these 
uh, Proverbs that were penned so long ago still have great benefit for us today. But understand for a moment how challenging leaving a financial legacy is in our culture in this day and age. I mentioned last week, for those of you who are here, that after World War II, the government sought out an economist by the name of Victor Laveau to develop uh, a plan and a strategy as to how to get the economy back from the, the, the horrible state it was after the war. And his proposal was to make consumption of goods the most common way of life in America. To make the consumption of goods a ritual and not only a ritual, but a ritual that we find our spiritual satisfaction in and our ego satisfaction in. Let's make buying stuff and consuming stuff the very essence of what it means to be an American. That's what they said. That's what we want. That's what we want the American people to be defined as. Buying stuff, consuming stuff. And we have done so with great success, friends. And they proposed this in the early 50s, and we have bought into this with great success. So do you know what happens when consumption becomes the highest good in a society? 80% of that society lives paycheck to paycheck. We have no uh, additional wealth for savings. We have no additional wealth for giving away. We have no additional wealth for vacations or dreaming about anything that could potentially happen in the future. 80% of us will live paycheck to paycheck. And we're going to spend all that we make and more on stuff, 99 of which is going to be not used or worse even yet, thrown into a trash can six months after we buy it. The proverb tells us this, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. When you just consume and consume and consume, whatever you see your sights on, whatever you set your eyes on, whatever you want, when you just feel like you can just take it, and you do so because we're Americans and that's just how we live our life, You're never going to be content. And you're never going to be rich. You're always going to struggle to get by. And then when we die, what do we have to show for? What are we going to do? We're just going to pass on a bunch of stuff to our children. What are they going to do? They're going to sell the house. They're going to rent a dumpster and throw 95% of it away. They may keep a a trinket or two to hold on to as, you know, a, a memory of their childhood in that house. But the legacy left for those children is just a bunch of stuff. Or worse, a belief in money that its sole purpose is to be consumed. That the point of money is to be consumed. The point of money is to buy stuff that is to be consumed. But the proverb tells us a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now an inheritance isn't just a financial package. Or the accumulated amount of goods throughout one's life. It's a legacy of what money is and what it is for and how to accumulate it and whose it is to begin with. That is the inheritance. That is the legacy that we desire to leave behind. And how the next generation develop, that is their inherited legacy. Well, we are going to be the ones who teach them. We're going to be the ones who teach them how to use their wealth and how to accumulate their wealth and whose wealth it is to begin with. Because the basic fact is our children are going to learn to handle money one way or another. You get this, right? The next generation is going to learn to handle money one way or another, just as we learned to handle money one way or another. And so the television will teach our children how to handle money if we do not. You guys ever, who have you seen the, the new GMC, it's a, I don't know what their latest uh, SUV is. They have a, the new GMC commercial. There's this uh, woman who comes with a, a new GMC in the neighborhood. 
She has this new GMC. She's purchased a new GMC, and it's, everyone is like, oh, they stopped their car to look at it. You, have, you can fit seven people in that? That's incredible. That's a beautiful, that's a, that's a super, stylish, super stylish car. And then what happens the next day? The entire neighborhood has a new GMC. Is that real life? But our kids are going to be like, Daddy, can I just go buy a new car? They did it on the commercial. I want a new car. The neighbor has a new car. I'm going to go buy a new car. How many of you have ever just thought, I'm going to wake up one morning and go buy a new car? You didn't do any planning. You didn't do any strategizing. You didn't think about how I'm going to pay for this or do I have enough money for it. I'm just going to go and get a loan and I'm going to buy myself a new car because I do not like the current one I have. That's really all the commercial is saying. Be discontent with what you have right now and go buy the new one. Your car doesn't fit seven people. Your car doesn't look as nice as this. Your car isn't that color. Go buy a different one. Yeah, it's $25,000, but we live in America. And consumption is the way of life in America. And so do it. So the TV is certainly going to tell us how to use our money. How about the credit card companies? 2% cash back? Isn't that great? Yeah, if you have discipline. It's kind of like the credit cards are almost paying me to use money. Isn't that what the 18-year-old is going to think? Is he going on that shopping spree with that new credit card that comes in the mail? It's almost like I'm going to get 2% back. Yeah, but you know what? You're going to pay 30% interest on that 2%. That's robbery, friends. But you know what? Our kids are going to learn one way or another. The credit card companies will teach our kids how to use their money. Society bent on consumption will certainly teach our kids how to use their money. Do you know that this past Christmas, just a month ago, we spent $1 trillion as a society on Christmas presents? That doesn't even include the decorations and the lights and the trees and the parties. A trillion dollars on Christmas gifts. How many of your kids are still playing with those gifts you bought them? We are, right? I'm just saying, we have a society bent on consumption, and so of course we're going to go and we're going to buy, and this is what our kids are going to learn about money. If we don't teach our kids the money, then the lotteries are going to teach our kids about how to accumulate wealth. Man, a billion dollar jackpot? Absolutely. Quick money. Easy money. The casinos, of course, easy money, quick money. All I'm saying is that our kids, the next generation, we are going to learn how to use our money one way or another. And all of these educators teach us is that money should be accumulated as fast as possible through whatever means is necessary. But the proverb tells us dishonest money dwindles away. But he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. And win the lottery, right? Get rich, quick schemes. What they don't tell you is that even if you do win the lottery, you're not any happier, studies show, because of it. A lot of people, in fact, about half go bankrupt after winning the lottery. The suicide rate for those who win the lottery is like through the roof. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make you any happier. All of those educators tell us that if you can't accumulate money quickly enough, the lottery, through the lottery or the casino or, or some other get-rich-quick scheme, then, then use dishonest measures to gain it. But the Proverbs will tell us, better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. And wouldn't you rather be able to sleep at night? All those educators teach us to be entitled in that we should get what we want when we want it simply because we want it. Get what we want when we want it simply because we want it. That we don't have to work to achieve, we just have to play the, the lottery or go to the casino or join some quick rich, get rich quick scheme. Or just go ask your parents for 20 bucks. 
That's an easy way of getting money too, right? Proverb tells us that lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Another proverb tells us that he who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. All of these educators teach us that the more money you have, the more stuff you have, and then the better off you will be. But the proverb tells us that a man's riches may ransom his life, but a poor man hears no threats. When you're rich, you have the threat of thieves and robbers knocking on your door and stealing what you've purchased and what you have. The poor man has none of that worry. All of these educators tell us that having some debt is necessary and it's responsible because if you ever want to get a car, if you ever want to buy a house, then you need a good credit score. And the way to get that is through starting some lines of credit right now by going into debt a little bit. What they don't tell you is that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. When you sink into debt, you are never free to dream about what you could do with your wealth and you are always enslaved to the worry and the anxiety of the lender above you. See, all of these educators are going to tell us to find our security and our identity as people in the money and the stuff we possess, but the proverb tells us to w- not to wear ourselves out to get rich, to have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they sh- will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Another one says, whoever trusts in riches will wither but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. So where are you putting your identity? Where are you putting your trust? Where are you putting your soul? Is it in the accumulation of your wealth? Is that who you want to be known for? Is that what you want to be all about? Are you putting your identity and your security in riches? Then what happens when you lose your job? What happens when your house gets broken into and all that stuff gets stolen? What happens when your house burns to the ground and it all perishes in ashes and dust? What happens when the, cra- when, the, when the stock market crashes? I'll tell you what happens. You're going to wither. Because if you tie your soul and your identity and your security into stuff and into riches, then when this is gone, and it will be gone, my friends, because it's going to rust and it's going to rot and it's going to be stolen and it's going to burn, then your soul, that which you tied into that, is going to rust and rot and wither and burn alongside of it just how it works so our society is constantly educating us about money and how to accumulate it and what its purpose is but my friends our society is a really bad teacher it just is it's just a really bad teacher and of course we are teaching the next generation too right it's not just our society it's it's how we live our life our kids the next generation they are looking at us as the primary teachers if if all we do is consume and worry about money and accumulate it through dishonest means and we prove we prove that we believe that this money is ours through the way that we use it, then what is our children going to learn? They're going to learn that, that it's okay to consume and to not be generous and to, and to accumulate wealth through dishonest means and that this money is ours and that it doesn't belong to anybody else, that I'm, that I'm an owner of my riches, not just a manager. If we live like that within our household, what are our kids going to learn about the use of their money? If we never talk with them about what they hear on the television and what they, what they see with the credit cards when it arrives in the mail, what an APR is. We don't talk to them about the pitfalls of the casino and the lottery. If we're not intentional about having these conversations when opportunities arise, then what are they going to learn? They're going to learn exactly what our society wants them to learn. My friends, we are the educators of the next generation. 
And we need to educate them while they're young. So if you're going to be your child's teacher, shouldn't we have a handle and a control on our money? We leave the legacy, which just means that a little bit of us is carried on to the next generation. A little bit of our mentality, a little bit of our practices, a little bit of the way that we live our life is carried on into the next generation. Our children are going to look at us as to how they're going to live their life. And so if you want to change your financial legacy, then you must learn to change your financial legacy. Because knowledge, which informs choices, which directs self-control, which develops habits, which develop character, is the way to change a family tree and leave leave a legacy regarding the accumulation and the use of our wealth. But it doesn't start with teaching our children. It starts with being taught. It starts with changing our own practices. And the most important principle that we must learn in regards to our finances is that we are not owners. We are simply managers of our wealth. Our wealth has been entrusted to us. I just, I pray, and I say this every single week, and I hope it sinks into you guys, because this principle is the most important principle you're going to learn if you want to not only be a generous person, which I hope we all want to be generous people, But if you want to find some security in regards and some peace in regards to your finances, you must grasp this very basic principle. And this is the most important knowledge then that we can leave to our children because this is going to develop the greatest character in regards to the use of finances in the next generation. See, not only is it easier to be generous with your money when you know it's not yours to begin with, But it's easier to be generous when you come to agree that the actual owner of your money wants you, the one he has entrusted his money to, to be generous with his money. And what we learn in Scripture is that when God sees that we are faithful with the use of our finances, time and time again we see that he will entrust us with more. Not because we are a health and wealth gospel preaching church by any stretch of the imagination, but because he will see that we are faithful what he has entrusted to us and he will want us then to be faithful with even more. Again, not so we can go buy the boat and the cabin and the new house, but so that we can be even more generous to advance his kingdom even further within our world. But my friends, this is a principle that requires faith, right? It's a principle that requires faith. You can either believe that God is faithful and begin sorting out your finances, handing over control of your money to God and letting fear and consumption go by the wayside, or you can keep living paycheck to paycheck. You can, you can keep living your life never feeling satisfied, never feeling content, always worrying, always only dreaming, but never doing what you would love to do and not being able to be generous because you just do not have the margin. Or so you believe you don't have the margin to be generous. See, most people don't even know where to begin to change. And so we do want to help you with that. Uh, Currently, right now, we are offering a financial peace university class. And the goal is that just after Easter, we're going to offer another one. And it is a goal of our church that every single person would walk through financial peace university. It has been life-changing and life-transforming for those who have gone through it. And we just encourage every single person... As it's being offered, hopefully after Easter, uh, certainly again in the fall, we're going to offer it several times a year moving forward. That is the hope and the goal, that every single person would walk through this to find some peace within our finances. And so imagine with me for a minute, uh, those of you who, who have children, if your children see you consuming more than you make, they see the, the credit cards and the, the payments piling up on your desk, if they see you buying more than 
buying more and more and more and more, but never being generous with what you have, what are they going to learn to do with their finances? What kind of people are they going to learn to be in regards to the use of their money? But also imagine for me, for a moment, if you, if you have children, if they see you being exceptionally generous with your resources, if you're able to take great vacations because you've planned for them and you've saved for them, those vacations that are free of stress, you know, um, because you're not worried about the credit card bill that's going to be arriving in your mailbox when you get home. What if your kids experience that kind of vacation? What if your kids see you funding causes you believe in because you have the ability to fund causes you believe in? You know what the number one reason parents fight? Spouses fight? It's money issues. What if if instead of your kids watching you fight with your spouse or hearing you fight with your spouse about money issues, what if... What if around the dinner table you, you dreamt together about what you could do with this money that you've saved? How could we be generous? How could we serve our community? How could we help? They're going to learn one way or another how to use resources. This past week, Emily and I began discussing, um, maybe more of me began discussing this idea of um, I'm putting a whiteboard above our computer. And on this whiteboard would be a public display of our budget month-to-month budget. Here's how much money we make. Here's where all the money is going. And it seems kind of weird, right? Um, because, because money has become such a privatized issue in our society. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about money. Um, uh, don't, don't ask me how I use my money. Don't ask me where my money goes. It's just a privatized issue. We don't talk about it within our society. It's, it's a novel idea, and so I felt it was kind of weird, you know, to put this public whiteboard up. But that the proverb tells us this, be sure you know the condition of your flocks and give careful attention to your herds. So look at your wealth regularly, you know, keep it in front of you. Make sure that you're paying attention to how much money you actually have. Budget in other words, right? Know where your money is going. Pay careful attention to where you are spending your money. Keep it in front of you at all times. So, you know, on, on this whiteboard, there'd be a section, you know, for, for how much money is coming in and how much money is going towards groceries and how much money is going towards gas and how much money is going towards, um, you know, all the, all the other categories that, that we have within our budget. Guys, if you don't budget, first of all, that's like the first thing. That's like, that's like finances 101. You've got to get a handle on your money through budgeting by knowing where your money is going But it it would help as a visual aid to both of us to see how much is left in various budgeted categories, but but it would also, I think, help us get excited about, you know, some of the savings accounts that are building up. You know, that that, that vacation account, we see that it's growing every single month. We we get excited about that vacation that we're going to take in a few years, you know? You know, we'd see that we have $1,000 in a car fund, and so when the car breaks down, we would peacefully hand over a check. Or peacefully swipe that card and say, wow, you know, we've saved that money for when the car breaks down. The, the Proverbs say that wealth of a, of a rich is the, the wealth of the rich is a fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor, right? Wealth can certainly be our advocate. If my car breaks down, then I have that money to, to pay for it. But the poor have no such option. The poor are going to be left in stress and left in and the, the, the ruined wake of not having any money to pay for those things. They're going to keep going further, further into debt. When the kids go off to college, right, we're going to be able to hand our child a check to say, hey, you know, we don't want you to be in a position of being $100,000 in debt when you leave this place because we've planned for this throughout the last 20 years of your life. And so here, 
take this and pay for your college. When Christmas arrives, as it does every single year, by the way, you know, it's no, it's no you know, in another 300 days, Christmas is going to be here again. 330 days, it's going to be here again. When your child grows two inches overnight and nothing fits, like these things are going to happen, and so you plan for them. You know, you budget for them. It makes sense. But if you just consume and consume and consume and don't save for what you know is coming, then yes, you're going to be ruined by it. You're going to be further, further into debt because you have already spent all of your money on those $100 Target binges for all that stuff that just costs into the dumpster six months later. Initially, I felt kind of weird by this idea. You know, I was like, oh, do we really want to put a a whiteboard with a public display of all of our finances for everybody to see? Uh, If you were to come into my house, you would know exactly how much money we make. You'd know exactly where our money is going. Feels kind of weird. And, And the reason that feels weird is because in our society, we have privatized our money. And and the use of our money and how I spend my money is my business. And you have no right to, to judge, you know, how I use my money. This is my money. So I, can, I can use it however I want to. I don't want my money on public display because I don't want you to know that, you know, I spend X amount of dollars on shoes every month, but then I never give to a local charity. I, I don't want you to know how much we eat out as a family, but how little I give to my local church. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want you to know how much I spend on clothing every month, but I, I never once gave anything to feed the naked, to clothe the naked. <laughs> Feeding them would probably be good too. If they don't have clothes, they probably can't afford food. Um, I don't want you knowing how much I spend on food because I never serve the poor who are hungry. I don't want you knowing how much my mortgage costs because, you know, then I would feel bad about not, you know, contributing to the, the homeless within our society. You know, it's like we, we privatize because... We don't want people looking too deeply into our resources. It's so interesting that in our culture, the first feeling that we associate with money is worry. All the studies indicate this. That that is the number one feeling that we associate with our money. Does anybody know what the second feeling that we associate with our money is? Any guesses? Shame. I worry about the use of my money because I consume and consume and consume more than I have, and we worry then that we won't have enough for future consumption, but I actually feel ashamed of all of my spending. And my friends, this is a prison. This is enslavement. And the reason I know this is a prison, because we've been there. We felt fear, and we felt worry, and we felt ashamed of our spending. For the first five years of our marriage, we worked so hard. We both had multiple jobs. We were like, you know, dawn to dusk. We were working and working and working before we had kids just to, just to have more money. And we were committed followers of Jesus, but we ate out whenever we felt like it, or we ate out of necessity because we had no time to prepare meals at home. So we were constantly eating out. And, and we bought whatever we wanted to because, you know, it was just the, the undisciplined nature that we, we had. And, and we worried as our credit card grew and grew And then if there was anything left over at the end of the month, we'd throw a few scraps to our local church. We felt the imprisonment. We felt it all. And we felt enslaved to our money, to worry and to shame, because deep within us, we knew that our budget was completely upside down. That we were living off of whatever we wanted to first, we were saving a little bit if we could, and we were giving the leftover scraps to God's work. We lived as if we were owners, and we were enslaved to that belief. And then one day we looked at each other and we said, this isn't right, right? This is backwards. 
This is completely upside down. We are not owners. We are managers. This is God's, and he is calling us to be generous with what we have. And so that day, literally, we made a decision that day. We were going to draw a line in the sand, and we were going to say the first 10% of all the money that comes into our home is going to the local church. We made that decision. And then we said we're going to put X amount of dollars in savings, and then we are going to live off the rest. And as hard as and painful as it was going to feel at the time, we said we are going to make this decision. Because we believe in a providential God, and we believe that we are not owners of our resources. We are simply managers of God's money. And over the years, we've added four compassion kids to that, and we still give 10% off the top to the local church, Restoration Church, (laughs) our local church. Um, We have four compassion kids. We give to a number of local missionaries as well. And over the years, it became less and less hard as we became more and more free. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on this as we uh, sing one final song together. And, and so the reason I tell you this is that we're, we're not ashamed of the way that we spend our money any longer. Right? There was once a day many, many years ago where we felt that way, but we're not that way anymore. We're not ashamed of the way we spend our money, and therefore I'm not ashamed to have a, a public display of our budget for anybody to see. Now this isn't a trophy that we hold up, right? We're not boasting about this. It's not an idol that we hold on to. What we discover if you analyze our budget is that the highest monthly expenditure in our mortgage, which uh, is, is our mortgage, which is true of most people, but the second highest expenditure, the most money going out is to charitable causes. And the second going out is to our, the third going out is to our savings. And I'm not ashamed of this. I'm proud of this. It's taken a lot of discipline and a lot of hard work to get there, but it's something we are part of. And I'm proud of it because what our kids are going to learn by all this, they're the primary ones who would see such a hypothetical whiteboard. What our kids would learn by this is that the first money that goes out of our house is 14% to God's work in the world. And hopefully they will see that increase as the years pass because the dream that we have, that Emily and I have for our family, is that we would be a generous household. That's just our dream for us. You know, we, we're in the Financial Peace University course right now, and, and we are all asked what our dreams are for our money. And the thing that we said is we want to be a generous household. We want to be able to write that check. If we, if we know a local cause who is in need of something, we want to be able to write that check and say, God bless you. Do the work that God has called you to do. If we see a friend who is in need, we want to say, I'm going to go fill up your, your cart with groceries. God bless you. We want to have that ability to do that. That is what we want to be known for. We want to be free of debt so that we can feel equipped to give more money away. And what our kids will learn is that food is expensive. So get your hands out of the pantry for the sixth time between lunch and dinner, right? Like, come on, food is expensive. They would see that if they had a public display of our budget, and they would see, guys, you know what? No, we can't go out to eat tonight. We have $9 left in our food budget for the month. Go eat something that we already purchased. You know, 14% of the food we buy goes to waste. It's $14 of every 100 that we just throw in the trash can every month on food. And what our kids would learn is that baseball and dance, they're expensive. But we love you, and so we have committed to funding these for you so that you can grow in them. And that's great that your friend is going to Disney World again. <laughs> that's really great for them. But you see that, that travel budget? That's not, it doesn't have $5,000 in it yet. And so in a few years, we're going to get there, and we're going to do it. And it's something to look forward to, and it's something to get excited about. And you know what? 
Money doesn't, in fact, grow on trees. There is no get-rich-quick scheme. The casinos will leave you with less than more. And so work hard and get disciplined about the use of your money. But if we're not talking with our kids about it, if it's not in front of them, if it's not something that is a constant conversation or a regular conversation, then they're going to be taught by the television. And they're going to be taught by the credit card companies. And they're going to be taught by the lotteries and the casinos. It's part of leaving a financial legacy to our kids. It's a tool that not only helps them, but helps them understand a financial legacy isn't so much about leaving behind a lot of money. It's leaving behind a belief and an understanding of what money is. It is a tool to further God's kingdom first and foremost. And what it is for, it is for first and foremost blessing and loving on our world. And how it is to be accumulated is through is through hard work. And whose is it? Certainly, it is not ours. We are simply managers, not owners of it.